It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Harry Robertson from the Opinion and Analysis Desk. The FT's Auditing in Crisis series has looked at the problems facing the big four accountancy firms, who, beset by scandal after scandal, have lost the faith of investors and the wider public. One case was in 2015, when PwC's head auditor on Bank of Ireland, John McDonnell, claimed that despite their huge understatement of losses, the firm's auditing of the bank before the financial crisis had presented a true and fair picture. But, say Jonathan Ford and Madison Marriage, they had followed a mechanical interpretation of the rules, which failed to produce results representative of the bank's position. This raises questions about auditing judgment and who the auditing firms really serve. This report is narrated by Jonathan. In the summer of 2015, at a session of Ireland's marathon parliamentary inquiry into the causes of that country's banking crisis, a senior auditor at PwC made a startling admission. John McDonnell had since 2010 led the big four firm's team on the audit of Bank of Ireland, the country's biggest financial institution. He was there to answer questions about the auditor's role in the bank's rescue during the financial crisis. PwC, then as now its auditor, had given the bank's accounts a clean bill of health in the summer of 2008, just months before it turned to the state for a bailout that ultimately ran to almost €5 billion. The politicians wanted to know why Bank of Ireland had not disclosed billions in losses that must have been foreseeable thus overstating its capital, and lulling investors to imperil their cash by putting it into the troubled institution. How, they asked, could these accounts have fulfilled the legal requirement to present a true and fair picture of its financial position? Mr MacDonald did not deny that losses might not have been included. Instead, he said the level of provisions was in effect dictated by the new international standards which had been introduced in 2005. These obliged the bank to provide only for incurred losses, in other words, payments that had already been missed. Providing against expected defaults, even if crippling and almost certain, was forbidden. Whether or not these rules were dangerously pro-cyclical and led to misleading figures was not the point, averred Mr MacDonald. They were written in legislative stone and could not be deviated from. He said, When those rules are in law, you must apply them to give a true and fair view. If you don't apply them, you cannot say the accounts give a true and fair view. The idea that a company's reported figures should give a true and fair representation of its assets, liabilities, financial position and profit or loss has a long pedigree. 
It dates back to the first audits in the 19th century and was written into law in Britain after the Second World War. In the 1970s, it was transposed into European legislation. If there's a foundational principle underpinning the assurance offered by audits, this is it. A concrete definition of this supple concept is not straightforward, but in broad terms it means the accounts should not overstate profit or performance so that the directors and shareholders can rely on them as the basis for determining that any dividends are not paid out of capital. It's a view that requires auditorial judgment. Tim Bush, head of governance at the advisory firm Perk, says, "It's one of those things that's hard to pin down precisely in words, but you know it when you haven't had it in the numbers. The classic tell is when losses that were always there arrive suddenly in one go. What it does not mean is the circular explanation Mr. Macdonnell offered the Irish MPs." One where true and fair simply means sticking to a mechanical interpretation of the accounting rules, irrespective of whether the financial results that they produce are at all representative of the company's real position. Mr. Bush says, "It's not only wrong in principle; it's actually very damaging. It creates a conflict between accounting rules, which are themselves underpinned by statute, and company law itself." In many recent accounting scandals, there has been more than a whiff of this conflict. Take the collapse of Carillion, for instance, which came about after the UK outsourcing group restated a series of contracts on which it had previously and mechanically written up substantial, unrealised and ultimately non-existent revenues. The result was the erasure of the prior six years' worth of dividend-bearing earnings. Other cases, such as Cooperative Bank's near collapse in 2013, and the crisis engulfing the Frankfurt and Johannesburg-listed retailer Steinhoff, also involved the sudden revelation of illusory profits and massive hidden losses. Natasha Landell Mills, head of stewardship at the asset manager Saracen and Partners, says many of the worries centre on audit quality. Did the auditors challenge enough? Did they actually ask whether the accounts met the higher order true and fair view test? This is not as simple as robotic adherence to accounting standards. Concerns about these matters have reignited the debate about the auditing market, and whether the big four of KPMG, EY, PwC, and Deloitte need more exposure to competition to limit conflicts of interest and prevent them from becoming too beholden to company bosses. But there is something bigger at stake, which is whether the rules somehow circumvent the legal framework requiring a true and fair assessment, and thus permit companies to present misleading figures. Sharon Bowles, former chair of the European Parliament's Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, says, "There's no point addressing the market issue without also looking at the substance of what auditors are doing." Do that, and it's simply a case of rubbish in, rubbish out. One of the ideas underpinning fair value accounting was to eliminate the capacity of bosses to squirrel away profits through big bath provisions. 
This was to stop them smoothing their results in ways that made it difficult for external investors to discern the underlying performance of the business. Such practices were a problem in the 1980s when acquisitive conglomerates such as Hansen and BTR used provisions to obfuscate the performance of companies they took over. In extreme cases, observers worried, they led to shares becoming seriously mispriced. But in the case of the financial sector, the cure has been much worse than the disease, particularly in the eurozone. Not only did the application of the key standard on fair value accounting for financial instruments, IAS 39, enable banks to conceal vast losses before the financial crisis, paying fat bonuses to managers on the fictitious profits they conjured, it also made it harder to throw off the post-crisis hangover. Loss concealment didn't end with the crisis. Permissive accounting rules have allowed it to continue, with up to €1 trillion Euros of unacknowledged impairments still buried in Eurozone bank balance sheets, according to the European Systemic Risk Board. Cormac Butler, a financial consultant who has testified before both the British and Irish parliaments about IAS 39, says, Bank assets held on their books at inflated values have been used as collateral for loans from the European Central Bank which cannot legally lend to insolvent institutions and is therefore unwilling to trigger a fire sale of collateral. The result is stagnation and the entrenchment of zombie banks. Attempts to reform the standard have only made things even more confusing. Supposedly to correct misapprehensions about how to apply the old IAS 39, the International Accounting Standards Board has brought in a whole new standard, IFRS 9. This does require banks to provide for anticipated losses, but only for those they expect to occur in the next 12 months. Beyond that, concealment remains an option, or, if you concur with Mr McDonnell's testimony, an obligation. A senior executive at one Big Four auditor says, IFRS 9 is very problematic. I see many difficulties ahead. Untangling this mess is no easy task. It requires a reconnection with the original purpose of audit, namely to provide assurance that companies' capital is not being abused by over-optimistic or fraudulent managers. The trend since the 1980s to tilt away from traditional prudence towards the supposed Goldilocks measure of neutrality in accounting rules might have started as a sincere attempt to provide investors with more useful information about the current valuation of a company. But, combined with the use of anticipated gains in the calculation of profits and asset values, it has given too much scope to self-interested bosses to push for an aggressive interpretation that augments the payout on their bonus schemes or long-term incentive plans. This is especially the case when valuations are based not on observable prices or invoiced revenues, but on complicated estimates produced with the aid of computer models. Pressed hard by managers to agree to a certain presentation of the figures, auditors have taken refuge in the arcana of the rules. Auditorial judgment, a crucial sanity check, has increasingly gone by the board. Observers believe a reassertion of this function is overdue. 
Karthik Ramana, a professor of business and public policy at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government, says, Corporate managers usually love to talk the upside. Accounting prudence is the common sense solution to protect investors and other stakeholders. He adds, The idea is simple. There should be a higher threshold for recognising anticipated gains than anticipated losses. At present, many believe the opposite is true. There needs also to be a recognition that auditing is not all about serving the capital markets, says the senior executive at a Big Four auditor. That has led to a profusion of information in company accounts that is designed to make them more relevant but actually serves to make them unwieldy and sometimes incomprehensible to lay readers. Nor is it clear that investors are the individuals to look to when it comes to policing the auditors themselves. The auditor adds, It's fallacious to believe that investors are that focused on audit quality. The truth is that they are not so concerned about corporate failure. Indeed, they actually welcome a certain amount as it spurs volatility, which is how they make money and persuade beneficial owners to give them investment mandates. By contrast, many think too little attention is paid to the interests of other constituents, whether employees, contractors, other business counterparts or the general public. In the UK, the Financial Reporting Council, or FRC, recently attracted attention when it appointed two board members, out of 15, with backgrounds in the charitable sector. Yet this move barely diluted the representation of financial sector firms, which stands at seven. Much of the debate so far has centred on the question of whether the power and influence of the big four firms should be contained. They have an overwhelming grip on the listed company market in Britain and the US, auditing 98% of the FTSE 350 and 99% of the S&P 500, respectively. No less importantly, they dominate the councils of the profession. For instance, some 34 current or former Big Four partners sit on the board and committees of the UK regulator, the FRC. In the run-up to and during the financial crisis, the former head of banks' audits at PwC and KPMG were board members. Observers are divided about the extent to which reductions in the market power of the big firms will improve audit quality. But most believe that more choice would be beneficial, not least encountering worrying declines in public trust in business. It would also reduce the scope for a few powerful organisations to influence the rules that they themselves then administer. Ms Landal-Mills says, It is this conflict that has in part led to the watering down of the true and fair concept. In Britain, a group coordinated by the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, or ICAEW, and comprising the largest auditing firms, is now considering proposing a cap on the share of the listed company market the Big Four can hold to 80% in response to threats to refer the issue to the competition regulator. Observers remain sceptical as to whether this would rebalance the profession sufficiently to dilute the Big Four's influence. For all the complexity that full breakups would entail, many still think they are the only way to tame these giants. If competition is to be strengthened, the so-called challenger firms below the Big Four will need to build up their capacity. Michael Itzer, chief executive of the ICAEW, 
suggests expedients such as challengers sharing the big technology platforms of the big four for a period, or even doing shared audits alongside the big firms in order to acquire wider experience of larger listed companies and sectors. He says, perhaps they might do a particular part of the balance sheet, but they wouldn't necessarily sign off the whole audit. Public and governmental bodies could also strengthen the second tier by directing work away from the big four towards smaller firms. The biggest challenge, though, is to restore the primacy of company law and with it the true and fair sanity check. Self-regulation by the biggest auditing firms, aided by special interest groups such as the financial services sector, has led to a perverse culture where the industry has sometimes sought to give accounting rules precedence over the law. One of the key auditing judgments is about whether the profits made by a company are legally realised, meaning either turned to cash or as near as makes no difference, and consequently available to be distributed to shareholders. In 2005, the FRC proposed abolishing this statutory link, describing it as rigid and an unnecessary obstacle to meaningful accounts. Their solution was to remove any legal requirements whatsoever, making it potentially easier for companies to pay dividends out of shareholders' own capital and disadvantaging creditors, something the very first audits were designed to stop. Baroness Bowles says... For too long, the accountancy profession has been allowed to stealthily water down the law in ways that may protect its own interest, but does precious little for anyone else. We must reassert the primacy of the law and get regulators to enforce it. She adds, Trust in both auditing and business is undermined by the sort of hocus-pocus that treats upward valuations as legitimate profits and ignores foreseeable losses. Auditors need to exercise their judgment if their assurance is to mean anything. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this Big Read podcast, you can subscribe on all the usual channels. If you're not already an FT subscriber, visit ft.com forward slash offer for our latest subscription offers. This episode was produced by Harry Robertson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.